You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit. This is Lecture 7, given on November 3, 1910, in Berlin. The lecture is entitled The Senses, Feeling, and Aesthetic Judging. We will again begin our lecture by reciting a poem to illustrate certain matters that we will explore today and tomorrow. This time the poem is the work of a non-poet, appearing to be more the incidental byproduct of the spiritual activity of the author himself. Thus we will be dealing with a soul manifestation that does not really arise from his innermost soul impulse, and this will significantly enhance our opportunity to study the theme of our lectures. The poem was written by the German philosopher Hegel about his relationship to certain secrets of human initiation. Quote of the poem, Eloisis to Hölderin, excuse me, to Hölderlin. <clears throat> Around me, within me, peace. The unremitting cares of busy human beings, sleep. And I am given freedom and leisure. Thank you, night, my liberator. The moon shrouds the uncertain boundaries of the distant hills with a misty mass. A bright strip glitters lovingly over the lake. The memory of the day's tedious clatter recedes, as if long years lay between it and now. Your image, dear friend, now rises before me with the joy of days long gone. Yet soon these yield to the sweeter hope of seeing each other again. I paint our opening scene already, the long-anticipated fiery embrace, then the more intimate second act, when we probe each other with questions, to discover what new things of feeling, view, and mood time has worked within the friend. Then the glad certainty that the old bond maintains its faith, truer, firmer, riper than before. That bond, not sealed by any oath, to live for truth alone, and never, never to make truce with any convention that would regulate our feelings and opinions. But then the thought, which carried me to you, winging over streams and high mountains, must face dull factuality. Soon a sigh betrays our quarreling, and with the quarrel flees the dream of sweet imagining. My eyes lift to the vault of eternal heavens, to you the radiant starry host of night. Forgetfulness rains down from your eternity, erasing every hope and wish. My mind loses it itself in gazing. What I call mine disappears. I surrender to the immeasurable I am it, am all, am nothing else. Thought, returning, alienated, recoils before the infinite and fails, astounded to fathom such depths of vision.
but imagination draws down the mind to the eternal and marries it to form. Welcome, exalted spirits, high shades, from whose clear brows perfection radiates. Do not fear. I feel the brilliance and gravity that surround you are my home, too. Ha! Had the gates of your sanctuary now sprung open, Ceres, you who are enthroned in Eloisis. Then, enthused, intoxicated feeling, your awesome presence near me, I would have comprehended your revelations, would have read the symbols high intent, and overheard the festive choirs of gods, the dooms they utter from their council seats. But today your halls are silenced, O goddess. The circle of the gods has flown back to high Olympus from their desecrated altars. The genius of innocence that long ago enchanted has fled the grave of profaned humanity. The wisdom of your priests is silent. No note of the sacred rite escaped to reach us. The researchers delve in vain for wisdom moved more by curiosity than by love. Wisdom they possess, you they disdain. To master her they dig for words to find the imprint of your exalted mind. In vain they grasp only dust and ash and will never conjure back your life. Yet in the rotting unsold mold they take their pleasure, dead themselves, content with the dead. There remains no sign of your high feasts, no trace of an image. The children of your mysteries, the rich essence of that exalted teaching, the depths of that unspeakable feeling, are too holy to be entrusted to a barren symbol. Even thought itself cannot encompass the soul, who beyond time and space and aspect of infinity, rapt, self-forgotten, awakes once more to consciousness. Those who would tell others what they know, though speaking with angels' tongues, would feel the poverty of words. It horrifies them that that holiest thing is so pettily thought, made so little by it, speaking itself seems a sin, so shuddering they seal their lips. This vow that the initiates laid upon themselves is a wise law, laid upon poorer spirits, never to make known what on a holy night they saw and heard and felt, lest even the nobler ones themselves should find their folly, troubles the memory of the holy, and their hollow chatter stirs it to anger, even with the holiest, lest it should be trampled in the mire, becoming a mere thing of rote, the plaything of sophists, a word-mongers wear, hawked about and bartered, dispensed for pennies, a cloak, for silver-tongued hypocrisy, a birch, perhaps, to train a mischievous child, and in the end so void, so utterly empty, that its only life root is in its echo on alien tongues. Your sons did not vainly flaunt your honor in the streets and marketplace, goddess, but bore it in their bosoms inmost shrine. Therefore you do not live in their mouths, they worshipped you with their lives. In their acts you still live. You live still. This night too, holy Godhead, I have looked upon you, you whom your children's lives have often revealed to me, and felt unseen as the soul of all their deeds. You are the higher meaning, 
the true faith of the single Godhead, which though all the world should fail, neither swerves nor shakes. End of long quote. Let us consider the assertion of the two previous lectures of this series that a survey of soul life demonstrates that it consists of two elements, judging and the experiences of love and hate, which are connected with desiring. It may seem that we are leaving out feeling the most important aspect of soul life, through which the soul keenly experiences its inmost na- innermost nature. Indeed, someone might be inclined to say that these lectures have described the soul in its least inherent aspects by ignoring the feeling element that surges there, giving it its specific character. We shall see, however, that the drama of soul life emphasized yesterday may be best understood by approaching feeling from the perspective of the two elements characterized. We must begin with the simple elements of the soul, which have often been mentioned. They are the sense experiences that enter soul life through the portals of our senses and continue their existence there. One fact is that soul life sends its waves surging up to the senses' portals and takes into itself the experiences of sense perception, which continue independently within the soul. Compare that with the fact that whatever is composed of the experience of love and hate arising from desire comes from within the soul itself. Mere observation of the soul reveals desires welling up from the very center of the soul, and even to superficial observation these desires can be seen to lead to the soul's experiences of love and hate. It would be a mistake to look into the soul for the desires themselves. They are neither to be sought nor found there. You would find in a more thorough study of the soul's life that desires arise through contact with the outer world and that love and hate well up from within the soul itself as the expression of desires. We may say, therefore, that by far the greater content of soul experiences, to the extent that it is concerned with mental images, is generated at the boundaries of the soul through the portals of the senses. On the other hand, what lives within the soul as love and hate wells up out of the very center of the soul. If we draw this idea, we will understand it better. We can characterize the soul life that we want to study in its inner nature by considering it as the inside of a circle that represents the content of our multifarious soul life. Now, think of the sense organs as portals. They should be regarded as such. This is something you can also gather from the lectures on anthroposophy. It is enough for now to consider the senses as portals opening to the outer world. Our drawing will best represent the interior life of the soul by showing desires that live on as phenomena of love and hate emerging from the soul's center and welling throughout it. The soul must, rep- the soul must be represented as completely suffused with desires flooding toward the portals of the senses. What happens as the result of sense experiences, 
such as the ear's perception of a sound or the eye's perception of a color. We will disregard the outer world in terms of its content and focus. Excuse me. Let me read that again. We will disregard the outer world in terms of its content and focus instead on the instant when we have the sense perception, the interaction between the soul and the outer world. Let us really live into that moment when the soul is having an inner experience of color or sound as it enters from the outside world through the portal of the transmitting sense organ. Imagine yourselves turning away from the sense experience. The soul lives on in time and takes with it and retains the memory picture of what was gleaned from the sense experience. The soul carries this with it. We have said that we must distinguish between what the soul continues to carry as a remembered mental image of a sense perception and the perception itself. If we fail to do this properly, we will not get to the truth, but only to Schopenhauer's view of the matter. We must distinguish between the soul experience that continues as a recalled mental image and the experience that arises through the activity of sense perception. What happened when the soul was exposed to the outer world through the portal of sense perception? As experience demonstrates in a direct way, our souls live inwardly in a surging ocean of desires, of the phenomena of love and hate, in the circumstances that I described yesterday and the day before. To the degree that the soul allows its waves to break against the portals of the senses, desires break against these gateways. Desires actually come into contact with the outer world in the instant of sense experience. It is the desires that are imprinted from the other side. If you take a signet ring with the name Müller on it and press it into sealing wax, the imprint of Müller's name remains there. What remains is the imprint caused by the signet ring. You cannot say that what was imprinted fails to agree with what the external world brought about. Not only would that not be an unbiased observation, it would be Kantian. Inasmuch as you want to look only at outer matter, it is Kantian. To state the crux of the matter, in this case the name Müller and not the ring's metallic composition, one would have to say that that which presented itself to the sense experience received an imprint from outside. That imprint is carried further. Just as you do not carry a stamping device with you, you also do not carry the color or sound with you. You do, however, carry what has arisen as imprint in the soul. What we may call desiring or the phenomena of love and hate encounters the sense experiences. Can we really call it that? Can we really detect an element of love or hate in a mere sense experience? Within direct sense experience, is there something like desire that is impelled to reach out? If some of that nature were not reaching out for sense experience, you would have nothing to carry in soul life. No memory image would be formed. There is a fact that speaks for this reaching out of desires toward the perceiving of sound, odors, colors, and so on. It is the existence of attention. 
Naturally, if we merely stare at a sense experience, this also leaves an impression in keeping with the laws that govern the relationship between sense organs and the outer world. Impressions we only stare at, however, are not carried further within soul life. You must meet them with the power of attention from within. The more intense the attention is, the more easily the soul continues to carry sense experiences in it as memory pictures. The soul's relationship to the external world is such that what lives in it substantially is allowed to surge to the outermost limits of its being, manifesting itself at the extreme boundaries of its being in the fact of attention. The other attribute of soul life, judging, is completely shut off during direct sense experience. Thus only desiring the dedication and openness of the soul to external experiences remains. A sense impression is characterized by the very fact that attention is concentrated to the point of eliminating judging. When a soul exposes itself to the color red or to a sound, only desire lives in this exposing and judging. The soul's other function is suppressed. Let me read that again. When a soul exposes itself to the color red or to a sound, only desire lives in this exposing and judging the soul's other function is suppressed. We must, however, draw a very exact line between them if we do not wish to succumb to fantasy. If, for example, we see a red color and say, red is, we have already made a judgment. Only when we go no further than the color impression itself is there still a simple correspondence of the soul with the outer world. What happens as a consequence of the interaction between the outer world and desiring? We have been concerned with forming exact images, and thus we have distinguished between sense perceptions and sense-derived sensations. Sense perception is the immediate experience that arises from being exposed to external impressions, to what is experienced while the impression is made. Sense-derived sensations are what remain with us to be carried afterward. We can say, therefore, that what is carried along in this way represents a modification of desiring. Attention causes us to notice the presence of desires, and what we carry on within us reveals itself as sense-derived sensation. Thus, living on in our souls is sensation in the form of modified desiring. In fact, we also carry the being of our own soul with such sensations or mental images, the force of desiring swirling and surging throughout one's whole soul being gives rise to the sensation. As we have seen, sensations arise at the gates of the senses, at the border between soul life and the outer world. Now let us assume for a moment that the force of desiring in us does not go to the boundary of the soul life but remains within the boundary. We would say of a sense experience that the force of desiring 
goes all the way to the soul's surface. Imagine that a desire appears but does not reach the boundary of the soul's life. It loses its drive in the soul's being so that it does not reach the portal of the senses. What would happen in this case? We saw that when a desire presses forward and is forced to retreat, sensation, or the sense-derived sensation, is generated. Such sensations are generated only when a counterforce from outside causes the retreat as a result of the activity of the senses. Inner sensation is generated when desire is forced back, not through direct contact with the world. It is stopped short of the boundary and retained within the soul itself. Inner sensation comes about at that point, and this is what we refer to as feeling. Thus, in psychological terms, feelings are modified desires that have been turned back upon themselves, but their life has been retained within the soul rather than surging all the way to its boundary with the outer world. We can say, therefore, that in the feelings we have essentially desiring the substantial aspect of the soul. Feelings as such are not new in the soul life, but are substantial and real processes of desire that occur there, occur there, but are substantial and real processes of desire that occur there. Let us hold on to the facts we have established and move on to describe from a certain angle the characteristics of the two elements of soul life, judging and the experiences of love and hate, which spring from desires. We can say that everything taking place in the soul as judging, and this is the main point, comes to an end at a certain moment. The same also applies to desiring. The soul's judging ceases when a decision is made, when judging has become a valid mental image, one that can be carried on within us. If we ask about the end of desiring, we find thus the satisfaction Every desire that lives in the soul is trying to attain satisfaction, and judging always strives toward decision. By investigating our soul life, we discover on the one hand judging, which presses toward decision until it reaches a conclusion, and on the other hand, we find in the lively soul life desires pressing toward satisfaction until it is achieved. We may say, then, that since our soul life consists of the two elements of judging and desiring, the soul's currents flowing toward satisfaction and decision are its most important aspects, which are present in every soul. If we were to observe soul life in its direction of flow, we would find it fully striving toward both of these goals. This is, in fact, what happens. If we study the life of feeling from certain perspectives, we can easily discover the sources of many different feelings, weighing the fact that soul life must display the effect of a continuous flow of striving toward satisfaction and decision. <clears throat> if, we, if we consider such manifestations within the soul life that fall, for example, within the concepts of impatience, 
hope, longing, doubt, and despair, we will have the basis to connect them with something real, something spiritually comprehensible. They all represent ways that the let me read that again. They all represent ways that the stream flowing in the soul expresses its striving toward the decisions of the forces of judging or toward the satisfaction of the forces of desire. Live into the feeling of impatience, for example, and you have a vivid experience of striving for satisfaction. You can understand how living in the feeling of impatience there is something we may call a desire that continually flows in the stream of the soul. It can reach a conclusion only when it results in satisfaction. The forces of judging are barely developed thereby. Or consider the feeling of hope. The continuous streaming of desire may be easily discerned there, but it is a desiring suffused by the other element of soul life the one we have described as the movement of our powers of judging toward decision. Anyone who analyzes the feeling of hope will easily see these two elements in it, desire filled with a striving for judging that can lead to a decision. The feeling of hope is complete in itself, since the two elements in this feeling are perfectly balanced in the soul life, resembling equal weights in a balance scale. There is exactly as much desire for satisfaction as there is prospect of a favorable decision. Now picture another feel excuse me, now picture another feeling arising as the result of a desire pressing for fulfillment, but permeated by a soul process of judging that is unable to reach a decision through its own strength and forces the activity of judging would not be capable of bringing about a decision. The desire, nevertheless, connects with such an activity of judging that is incapable of bringing about a decision. One then experiences the feeling of doubt. We can discover a remarkable interplay of judgment and desire throughout the feeling realm. When someone fails to find these two elements in a feeling, it is because the person has not searched far enough and should continue to search. In recognizing the importance of judging for the soul life, we find it necessary to say that the activity of judging concludes in the formation of a mental image, but that a mental image is important for life only if it is true. The basis of truth is within itself. The soul as such is incapable of deciding what is true. This is something that we must all feel when comparing our own soul life in its individual uniqueness with the truth we are attempting to uncover. We need only consider that what we are calling judging in soul life could just as well be termed mulling over or reflection. This mulling over or reflecting leads finally to the judgment we build out of the mental image. By reflecting, we do not necessarily arrive at the right decision. The result will be correct on quite different grounds that are lifted out of the arbitrariness of the soul. Thus the judgment that the soul strives toward in the decision 
comes about outside the soul element. If we inquire now into the origin of the other element, desiring, which wells from unplumbed depths at the center of the soul, spreading in every direction throughout the soul's life, we will not initially find it within that soul life itself, but rather outside it. Desires and decisions enter the soul from without. Satisfaction, as the product of desire, however, does live within the soul. In considering truth, whose foundation lies outside the soul, a battle for truth or a struggle to arrive at a decision takes place within the soul life. One might be described as a warrior in judging, whereas in the inner realm of soul life one would be called a hedonist. It is important to note here that only the first part, the start of judging, takes place within the soul, whereas making decisions brings us into a realm beyond it. The opposite is true in terms of desiring. Rather than its beginning, its ending or satisfaction occurs within the soul. Now, we should look more closely at what the soul experiences as satisfaction. Let us compare it with the previous statement that sensation is a surging of desire to the very boundary of the soul's life, whereas feeling stops short halfway, where desiring weakens. What happens at the place in the soul where it experiences satisfaction, the end of desire? It is the place where we discover feeling. Thus we can say that feeling manifests where most deeply within the soul desiring ends in satisfaction. That is only one kind of feeling found at the halfway point in the soul's depths where desiring ends. There is another kind of feeling that has a different source, namely through the fact that relationships exist in the soul's depths between inner life and the external world. That is expressed in that our desires are focused on external objects. Consequently, unlike sense perceptions, they do not always extend all the way to outer objects. When we recognize a color, desiring reaches all the way to the external world. A feeling that has a relationship to an external object, however, can develop within the soul out of the desire. Desire can develop in relation to any object, even when it comes to a halt in the middle of the soul. It is still related in a remote sense to the object, just as the needle of a compass point excuse me, just as the needle of a compass points toward the North Pole without reaching it. In this way we can see that desires may shut themselves off within the soul even while they maintain a relationship to the outer world in such a way that the external world has a connection to the soul life that does not require direct contact with the soul's boundaries. Those feelings can then arise when desire for the object continues to exist, even when the object is not capable of satisfying the desire. Imagine a soul approaching an object, desire for it, is generated, but the object is unable to gratify the desire. The desire then remains in the soul and is ungratified. 
Let us investigate the situation very precisely and compare it with one where a desire achieves its goal in the soul's life. There is a considerable difference between a situation where a desire attains its goal within the soul and one where it does not. A desire that has attained satisfaction and is then neutralized has an effect on the life of the soul in such a way that it has a healthy influence on it. When desires continue to live in the soul without satisfaction because the objects cannot provide it, after the object is removed, the soul retains a living connection to a void, so to speak. Consequently, the soul lives on in unsatisfied desiring as though in an inner fact without any basis in reality. This fact alone is enough so that the soul life has an unfavorable illness-causing influence upon that connected to it, namely the spirit and body owing to the unsatisfied desires. Feelings based on satisfied desires are, therefore, very different for direct observation from those built upon frustrated desiring. In a flagrant case, it is a simple matter to discern this. In subtler cases, people do not always realize what they are confronting. Let us picture a person looking at some object. Then he goes away. What is referred to here is not a desire extending to an object, but one established in the innermost soul. The person can go away and afterwards say that the object satisfied him or that it did not. Whether, for example, he says that he was pleased by it or not, or expresses it differently, the result is the same. In the one case there is a desire that has been satisfied, whether or not this is plainly stated, and in the other case there is displeasure owing to continuing desire. There is only one category of feelings that shows up in soul life in a somewhat different light, and that is a matter profoundly characteristic of the soul's life. It will be obvious that feelings can be generated not only by external objects but also by inner experiences. This applies to both satisfied and unsatisfied desires. Thus, a feeling that we must characterize as an unsatisfied desire can be generated by a sensation that may recall to memory something that happened long ago. We discover within us causes for our feelings, for satisfied and unsatisfied desires. Let us differentiate for a moment between desires stimulated by external objects and those stimulated from within. There are, for example, striking inner experiences that can show us how our inner life contains desires that stop short of fulfillment. Imagine yourselves mulling over a matter. Your power of judgment is too weak, and so you cannot reach a decision. Thus your soul life, your own desires, remain unsatisfied, and you experience pain in this feeling. There is only one kind of feeling in which judgment does not reach a decision, nor do our desires actually find satisfaction without causing us pain. Those are desires, excuse me, those are feelings in which desires are focused neither directly on external objects nor directly on an inner experience. In ordinary sense experiences, we stand directly before an external object with our desires, but we do not judge in the process.
Once judging begins, we have gone beyond the sense experience. Let us assume that we carried judging and desiring all the way to the boundary of soul life, where the sense impression from the outer world surges directly against it. A desire was thus generated, stimulated by the object, a desire that we then permeate with judgment right up to the boundary, the same place we had the sense impression. This generates a peculiar feeling, an amalgam composed in a very strange way. We can best describe it as follows. We allow our desiring, horizontal lines in a diagram, to flow right up to the boundary of our soul life, as far as the eyes, for example. We exert our soul life with respect to our desires and allow it to flow up to point A a portal of the sense experience. We also exert our powers of judging, vertical lines, and allow them to flow up to the site of the outer impression. We will let this drawing serve as a symbol representative of the very curiously combined feeling that has been referred to. The difference between these two currents, both of which flow to the site of the external impression can be appreciated properly when we remember what has already been said. <clears throat> when we develop our powers of judging, the peak of the soul's activity lies beyond the soul rather than within it, for the soul does not determine truth. Truth overwhelms desire, and desiring must surrender to it. When we decide something within our souls, using our power of judgment, in which truth is of imminent importance, we must take an element into the soul that is essentially foreign to it. We can say then that the vertical lines that represent the powers of judging go outside us and, circums and circumscribe something of an external nature. Our soul life, as the life of desiring, can go no further than the boundary where it is either hurled back or halts on its own and remains limited to itself. Desiring feels overwhelmed when the judging in the soul concludes with truth's verdict. Our example, however, specifically assumes that desiring and judging both flow to the point where the impression was received and they fully coincide. We see that our desiring does not flow out and bring back the alien element, truth. It brings back the judgment that has gone all the way to the boundary of the soul's life. Desiring surges to the soul's boundary, turns around and returns with the decision. What sort of judgments are we limited to bringing back in this way? They are exclusively aesthetic judgments relating in some way to art and beauty. Only when we observe works of art does our soul life extend just to the boundary of its activity, turn around on encountering those outer objects, and return with the judgment into itself. You may find this strange initially, but self-observation will convince you that it is true. 
Now imagine yourselves viewing the Sistine Madonna or the Venus de Milo or any other true work of art. Could you say that this object arouses your desire? Yes, it stimulates it, but not of itself. If the object itself were to arouse your desiring, which is possible, whether or not a desire is aroused at all, would not depend on a certain development of the soul. It is thoroughly conceivable that you could stand before, say, the Venus de Milo and not be the least bit moved inwardly. This could also be true of other objects. There is an ordinary indifference toward them. This indifference also arises in those who experience no soul response to the Venus of Milo. Those who bring an adequate soul life toward a work of art allow the stream of desiring to flow to the boundary, and then something returns to them. For others, nothing returns. What returns is not a desire. It is also not a desire that yearns to return to the object. It is the desire that expresses itself as a conclusion. That is beautiful. Here the forces of both desiring and judging interact. We attain satisfaction in the outer world only when it stimulates activity within the soul. How much we experience in relationship to the Venus de Milo depends on how much we already have in our souls and how much will return to us is in direct proportion to how much we let flow out to the direct impression. The enjoyment of beauty requires the immediate presence of the work of art because the substance of the soul must strive out to the boundary of the soul's life. Every memory of a work of art results in something other than an aesthetic judgment. An aesthetic judgment originates through the direct influence of a work of art when the waves of soul life willingly surge to its boundary and return as aesthetic judgments. Therefore, in truth, we have something to which desire capitulates to a certain extent, as if to something outside the soul. And in beauty there is an element wherein desiring directly coincides with judging, where the decision itself is brought about by the voluntary movement of desiring to the boundaries of the soul, returning as a judgment. This is why the soul's inner experience of beauty spreads such an endlessly warm satisfaction throughout the soul. Essentially, the greatest balance exists in the soul's forces when desiring meets the boundary of the soul's life and does not return as desiring but as a judgment, which the soul then experiences as an element of the outer world. Thus nothing is so easily found whereby the conditions for a healthy soul life are so strongly developed as when we surrender to beauty. When we strive toward the fruits of thinking of the soul, we work in essence within the soul with the material before which our desiring must continually surrender. This capacity for desire must indeed surrender to the majesty of truth, but this is impossible without impairing the health of the soul and all the other facets of the soul's life. <clears throat> A continual striving in the realm of thought wherein desire must continually capitulate, is something that must dry out the human being in both body and soul. On the other hand, 
the judgments that return an equal amount of satisfied desires into our souls best balance our desiring and judging. Do not misunderstand and think that I am saying that it is good for human beings to wallow continuously in the enjoyment of beauty and that truth is unhealthy. If it were stated that I had said that thinking is unhealthy and wallowing in beauty is healthy and thus wallow in beauty, it would make an easy excuse for laziness in pursuing truth. Such should not be the case. Instead, the following situation should occur in the soul. Seek, since seeking truth is a duty that furthers the progress of culture in general, as well as that of the individual, we are forced to suppress our desiring in favor of truth. Since the decision concerning the truth does not lie with the life of desire, truth forces us to suppress it. We must do this without hesitation in striving for truth. Consequently, it is essentially striving for truth that restrains our self-love to the appropriate degree. When we consider the matter objectively, we can gain a certain satisfaction from our inner experience of how our search for truth continually encounters the boundary of our own capacity for judging. Seeking truth makes us increasingly humble, but if we were to continue living in a way that reduces us to ever greater humility, we would eventually arrive at a point of dissolution. We would lack an element essential to the fulfillment of the soul life, a sense of our own inner being. <clears throat> we must not sacrifice our own selfhood through exclusive devotion to that before which the inner surging of our desire life must surrender. Let me read that again. We must not sacrifice our own selfhood through exclusive devotion to that before which the inner surging of our desire life must surrender. This is where the activity of aesthetic judgment comes in. The life of aesthetic judging is such that we bring back what we have taken to the soul's border. In this life we are allowed to do what truth requires of us, to arrive at decisions with absolute selflessness, without egoism. There is no other way to seek the truth. And what is the situation in terms of beauty? This is a very different matter. Here, too, we give ourselves completely to it, allowing the movement of the soul to flow, almost as we do with sense-derived sensations, right to the soul's boundary. And what comes back to us? It is something that cannot possibly be given to us from outside, something that cannot be determined externally. It is ourselves that is returned. We surrender ourselves and then are given back to ourselves. It is a peculiar attribute of aesthetic judgment that it encompasses the moment of selflessness just as it does the truth, while asserting the sense of selfhood that, in the two previous lectures, was referred to as the inner master. We are given back to ourselves like a free gift in the aesthetic judgment. As you can see, particularly in these lectures, I must present things in a way that avoids definition. I have often spoken out against defining. For the same reason I will also not say, this is a feeling, and so on, but I will attempt to characterize by simply laying out the extent of the soul's life 
by simply discussing the limits of the soul's life. In the quote-unquote Anthroposophy lectures last year, we saw that the body shares a boundary with the soul. We tried to comprehend the nature of the human being at that common border, to discover how it is related to the outer shape of the body. If you recall that material, you will have a foundation for much that we will discuss in these lectures and in what these lectures on psychosophy are particularly directed toward. It is hoped that they will provide rules to live by and wisdom for living. Thus it was necessary to lay a broad foundation in those earlier lectures. Perhaps today's characterizations have indicated the way in which desires surge in the soul's inner life. It was stated yesterday that that certain feeling-like experiences, such as judgments, depend on what kind of independent life our mental images lead. The previous lectures ended with the statement that the mental images we have acquired in the past come alive. They are like bubbles in the soul as they lead a life of desire of their own there. Much depends at a given moment in our lives on what sort of life they lead. What we characterized yesterday as boredom and other soul events that help or adversely affect human beings make all the difference as to whether a person is happy or unhappy at any given moment. Our present soul-sensing depends on how the mental images we have previously acquired behave as independent beings. This raises the question of what our attitude must be when we study the soul life in relation to our lack of control, in a certain way, over specific mental images, images we must take into our present soul life. Other mental images may enter it more easily. You are aware of how much depends on whether we have the capacity to summon a mental image or recall it from memory, and whether we can do this with a certain ease. When we recall something in particular, we must ask which images arise more easily and which with more difficulty. This can be extraordinarily important in life. As we assimilate these mental images, can we impart something to them that makes recalling them easier? Indeed we can. Even to consider such a possibility can have enormous benefit for many people. It can make our inner and outer lives easier if we pay attention to what could ease the recall of mental images, to what we could do to promote it. Those who observe the soul from all sides will see that something must be added to a mental image in order to make it easier to remember. We have found desiring and judging as the two aspects of the soul life. Therefore we find only within these two elements what must be added to mental images for easier recall. What can we give of our desiring to our mental images? We can give just that, desiring alone. But how do we do that? We must transfer to the mental image at the moment we assimilate it as much of our own desire as possible. It is good for our soul life to give some of our desiring to mental images. We can do this only by taking up the mental image with love, by permeating it with love. The more lovingly we accept a mental image, in other words, the more interest we put into a mental image, 
the more we can lose ourselves with our egoism when taking up a mental image, the better can it be retained in memory. Those who cannot lose themselves in a mental image cannot easily retain an image in memory. Farther along in these lectures we will discover other indications as to how we can surround mental images with a loving atmosphere. The other element that we can give to a mental image is our power of judging. Every mental image, in other words, is more easily recalled when taken up through the soul power of judging rather than merely being imprinted on us. If judgment is exercised when making a mental image part of the soul structure, encircling it with judgment, one adds an element that furthers recall. One surrounds it with something like an atmosphere. <clears throat> the ease or difficulty of recall depends on the way we prepare our mental images. We will see that the way we surround a mental image with love or judgment plays an extraordinarily important role in our soul life. That subject, however, is for tomorrow. We must also consider the fact that our soul life has a continuous relationship with the I Center capital. Following this path of inquiry, which has presented us with some difficult challenges today, tomorrow we will find the possibility of bringing together the two directions, that of memory and that of the I experience. <clears throat> it might surprise some of you to hear that all human feelings consist essentially of desires. It may especially surprise those of you who are aware that overcoming desire is a goal of the higher life of the soul, achieved through esoteric development. But the term overcoming desire is not an accurate expression in psychology, since desiring does not originate in the soul itself, but instead surges in from unknown depths. What is it that surges into the soul? Of what is it an expression? We will comprehend this in a more concrete way tomorrow. For now we can think of it more abstractly as something that corresponds to desiring on a higher level, issuing from one's innermost being as will. And if we struggle against desiring for the sake of a higher development, we are not battling the will underlying a desire, but the several modifications of it, the particular objects of desire. In this way we purify the will, and it works with purity in us. Will divorced. Excuse me. In this way we purify the will, and it works with purity in us. Will divorced from objects. Such an unencumbered will represents, in a certain connection, the highest in us. Do not confuse this with the quote-unquote will to be, unquote, which is not unencumbered. Think rather of a will with a content of desiring, but without an object. Will is pure and free only when it is not influenced by a specific desire, but instead leads away from any specific desiring. We ourselves can witness the life of will surging into the life of feeling. When that is the case, we have a real opportunity to study the fact that will and feeling have something in common. All kinds of fantastic definitions can be formulated for will and feeling. Someone may say, for example, that will must have an object, and its result must be a deed. Such definitions, however, are usually totally unjustified. We will see that they generally have no connection to the reality at all, 
and that those who formulate such ideas would do better to turn to the genius of language, which is wiser than the personal human soul. <clears throat> language, for example, has an inspired term for the inner experience of will turning directly into feeling. Imagine the will moving toward a boundary, but it impairs itself inwardly along the way. Picture ourselves inwardly observing such an essentially impaired exertion of the will. We allow the will to retreat, as it were, and observe the process. This is what would happen if someone were to encounter another being and if the will's inner swelling were to reach a certain point and then be restrained. This would certainly leave a deep feeling of dissatisfaction in the will. Language has invented a word for the will that does not result in an action but retreats. It is the inspired word disgust, widerwille in German, or counterwill. It is perfectly clear to everyone that this is not true will. Such will, it becomes self-evident, is a feeling or a will that retreats into itself. Language coins the term for the will's viewing of itself and expresses thereby a feeling. We see here how meaningless it is to define the will by stating that it is the starting point of an action. Modified will, or desiring, surges within the will and, depending on how it behaves, shows the various soul forms. The end of Lecture 7